Welcome to Prism, a fortnightly podcast from Lakshmi Kumar and Sridharan, featuring our best legal minds coming together to offer their insight on key business law issues that are current. We at LKS take pride in combining our experience and knowledge to throw light on a wide variety of practice areas from M&A, corporate and commercial laws to antitrust laws, privacy laws and disputes. Before we dive in, please note that this podcast is for general information only and does not constitute legal advice and should not be used as a substitute for competent advice from a qualified counsel. Hi everyone, I am Badri Narayanan, a partner at LKS. The idea behind this podcast is to deconstruct complex legal issues of the day so that their practical implications for businesses become clear. In this inaugural episode, we deal with a variety of issues. The recent amendments to the Foreign Direct Investment Policy as it pertains to the insurance sector is going to be the first topic. We'll move on from there to the revised regulatory sandbox for fintech by Securities and Exchange Board of India, the equivalent of SEC in the US. The notice from the Enforcement Directorate to an Indian cryptocurrency exchange platform that alleges the violation of a certain foreign exchange regulation is another topic that we will cover. And finally, the recent amendments proposed by the Ministry of Consumer Affairs, Food and Public Distribution in respect of flash sales, cross-selling and sales by associate entity on an e-commerce platform is going to be the last topic. Joining me today is Gaurav Dayal, a partner at our firm, to discuss the recent amendments in the FTI policy pertaining to the insurance sector. Welcome, Gaurav. What is the update regarding FDI uh, in insurance sector, Gaurav? Could you throw some light on that, please? Thanks, Padri. Hello, everyone. Uh, so, in February 2021, the Finance Minister, as part of the Union Budget for FY 2021-22, announced the proposal of the government to increase foreign investment in insurance companies from 49% to 74% and enable foreign ownership and control. To give effect to the proposal for increase in cap of foreign investment to 74%, the Insurance Act of 1938 was initially amended. Thereafter, the foreign investment rules under the Insurance Act were amended sometime in May 2021. These changes give the foreign partner the right to appoint a majority of directors, control the management and the policy decisions taken. More recently, on 14 June 2021, the government released the press note too. This press note seeks to amend the consolidated FDI policy to reflect the revised caps for foreign investment in insurance companies in India to 74% under the automatic route. However, these amendments by the press note will be made effective separately and such a notification is expected to be issued fairly quickly. Thank you, Gaurav. Considering the insurance sector is a sensitive sector, have any safeguards been proposed while allowing for foreign ownership and control in the Indian insurance companies? Well, yes. Uh, insurance is considered to be a sensitive sector since it is estimated to hold around 35% of total savings by Indians. Given this backdrop, in order to protect the interests of the policyholders as well as to obtain political consensus on the amendment, the government set out several safeguards that have to be complied with by the insurance companies. 
The press note also mirrors some of the safeguards included in the amendments to the Insurance Act and rules that are required to be complied with by insurance companies receiving foreign investment. The key safeguards include uh, firstly, requirement to have majority of directors, the key managerial personnel, and at least one person amongst the chairperson of the board of directors, the managing director, or the chief executive officer to be resident Indian citizens. Secondly, compliance with the applicable regulations of the IRDA, which is the sectoral regulator for insurance in India. In addition, Insurance companies in India with foreign investment exceeding 49% are also required to uh, firstly retain at least 50% of net profits in their general reserves if in that particular financial year a dividend is paid on equity shares and the solvency margin is lower than the prescribed level of solvency. Secondly, in relation to independent directors on the board, meet either of the following requirements. If the chairperson of the board is not an independent director, then at least half of the board of the directors is to be comprised of independent directors. Or, if the chairperson of the board of directors is independent director, then at least one third of the board of directors is to be comprised of independent directors. A key takeaway from this is that the foreign investors, despite having ownership and control, will have to continue to rely on Indian citizens who are resident in India to man key management roles in the insurance company and its board of directors. Very interesting, uh, Gaurav. Uh, so, uh, how do you foresee uh, changes to the current market scenario following this amendment? Yes, absolutely. The changes are expected to see increased activity in the sector in the long run. The policy change also opens up opportunities for Indian partners to exit or bring down their stake in the insurance sector. A higher FDI limit will also help the insurance companies access to foreign capital to meet their growth requirements uh, since insurance is a capital-intensive business. Insurance penetration currently stands at around 3.7% of the GDP, which is uh, quite low compared to the global average. Increased foreign investment by global players is expected to bring in global best practices besides helping lower the cost of products due to greater competition and greater penetration. Industry insiders also point that foreign ownership and control will also incentivize the foreign partner to bring its expertise, innovation and technical know-how to the Indian insurance sector. Thank you, Gaurav. Uh, I'm just changing track uh, and on a different note, uh, can you share your thoughts on the new model for regulatory sandbox for fintech companies that the SEBI, which is the Securities and Exchange Board of India, has recently proposed? Um, would you like to throw some light on SEBI's regulatory sandbox? Sure, Badri. Essentially, a regulatory sandbox is live testing of new products or services in a controlled regulatory environment for which regulators may permit certain relaxations for the limited purpose of testing such products or services. To facilitate use of latest fintech innovations in the capital markets, SEBI by a circular issued sometime in June 2020 introduced its framework on regulatory sandbox, thereby allowing live testing of new products, services and business models.
Very interesting. So what changes has SEBI come out with now? Basically, SEBI has introduced a two-stage testing criteria. During stage one testing, the applicant is to use a limited and identified set of users, whereas during the stage two testing, the applicant is permitted to test with larger set of identified users. The users for both stages are required to provide their positive consent, including their understanding of the risks of using the solution. The eligibility criteria for stage one includes a genuine need to test, a genuine need for relaxation in certain regulations, potential benefits to users, along with safeguards to put, mitigate potential risks. For an applicant to be eligible for stage two, it has to demonstrate adequate progress, present users' feedback, and also present the intention and ability to deploy the solution on a broader scale. Importantly, it has been clarified that the applicant should be an entity registered with SEBI. Such entity may apply on its own or in partnership with any other entity. In either scenario, the registered market participant will be treated as the principal applicant and be solely responsible for all aspects of participation in the regulatory sandbox. An applicant will be eligible for stage 2 only after completing a minimum of 90 days in the regulatory sandbox. The total duration of the sandbox testing stage, including stage 1 and stage 2, will be a maximum of 12 months and extendable upon request of the applicant and approved by SEBI. In addition to the eligibility criteria, the applicant is also required to submit an exit strategy which is applicable during successful testing as well as a withdrawal strategy which is applicable during unsuccessful testing. Thanks Gaurav. Uh, just to conclude, uh, what are your views on the regulatory overview which is brought in by the regulatory sandboxes? Well, the key challenge for a regulator in current times is to create an ecosystem fostering innovation while also balancing issues relating to customer protection, data security and privacy. Increased regulation could hamper innovation which is a key attribute of fintech and it can also end up driving operational costs. However, regulatory coherence will support growth of the fintech sector in the long run and also help in gaining customer trust, which is a key factor in attracting more capital. To that extent, usage of regulatory sandboxes by the regulator is seen to be a step in the right direction to drive innovation and encourage increased adoption of financial technologies. Thanks Gaurav, this has been very insightful. Now we have Mr. Heman Krishna, joint partner, to discuss a notice that the Enforcement Directorate is reported to have sent to an Indian cryptocurrency exchange platform, which has created something of a storm among the Indian crypto players. Hemant, can you tell us more about what we know so far about the contents of the Enforcement Directorate's notice to Vazirx? Thank you, Bhatri. Based on what I could gather from news reports, I understand that the Enforcement Directorate has issued a show cause notice to Vazirx, which happens to be one of India's largest cryptocurrency exchanges, of course. The ED has actually also put out a tweet to this effect, although Vazirx has said that it is yet to receive this notice at the time of this recording. 
I read a Bloomberg Quint report that they've reviewed a copy of the notice and the allegations in the notice revolve around two sets of issues which are perhaps connected but the correlation between them is not yet clear. One relates to a money laundering investigation into certain Chinese owned mobile apps for illegal betting using which Chinese nationals have supposedly laundered amounts to the tune of 57 crores by converting them into cryptocurrency. The second relates to some users who have accounts with Wazirex and also with Binance, a Cayman Islands based crypto exchange, and have transferred cryptocurrency worth 1400 crores, that is in rupees, from the former to the latter. As far as violations of law are concerned, you know, the notice alleges two sets of violations. One is a violation of section 3A of FEMA which uh, prohibits dealing in or transferring foreign exchange or foreign security by any person who is not an authorized person such as an authorized dealer bank for example secondly there are also allegations about wazirex's kyc processes and bookkeeping interesting can you tell us how these allegations square with the legal framework applicable to crypto exchanges in india Uh, to talk about the first violation i mean for section 3a to have indeed been violated it be essential to establish that foreign exchange of foreign currency was in fact transferred by an unauthorized person now foreign currency and foreign exchange are both related concepts and they both defined under fema but neither contemplates cryptocurrency explicitly and uh, this is important in fact from time to time questions have been asked about whether cryptocurrency should be considered a prepaid payment instrument under the payment system and settlements act or goods or even security under the securities contracts regulation act and you know each of these would have their own implications in the indian context so it's possible to make arguments in support of some of these but no one can be certain about how the regulators and the courts will view these arguments ultimately at the same time even the charges against wazirex of not following kyc norms are somewhat fuzzy because crypto exchanges are currently not regulated in india and there are no explicit kyc procedures that they are required to follow since kyc norms in india are prescribed by sectoral regulators like rbi and sebi for entities which are actually regulated by them it's a different matter that in fact you know most established crypto players in india voluntarily implement certain kyc processes for their account holders uh that's you know to follow a better safe than sorry kind of approach thank you as someone who watches this space closely what do you think is in store in terms of regulations in the near future for crypto players the actual problems of allowing cryptocurrency exchanges to function without any barriers are also well known and range from anything from money laundering and tax evasion to cyber security issues and volatility and so on and in fact sector watchers will recall that from time to time the government's own outlook towards how to regulate cryptocurrency has swung between extremes and when the rbi attempted to restrict the availability of banking facilities to crypto players through its 2018 circular the supreme court read down that circular as being excessive and not being a reasonable restriction as against the constitutional right to engage in any trade uh, also the popularity of cryptocurrency transactions of course has gone through the roof there's been a huge uptick all over the world including in india in the recent past especially so in the last one year of course and you know even as governments and central banks around the world are now trying to come to terms with this phenomenon i feel that uh, cryptocurrency as an idea has crossed the proverbial rubicon so to speak 
because i mean the direct listing of coinbase in the us exemplified this because it recorded a market value of 86 billion dollars a number that's ironically more than 3 times the market cap of nasdaq where it's listed so um signals from the government of course have been contradictory there are reasons to be optimistic that the government will consider a more measured approach towards regulating the sector in the future uh, in march this year in fact uh, you know if this is anything of a uh, sign of things to come the ministry of corporate affairs has somewhat gingerly issued an amendment making it mandatory for all companies to disclose the details of trades and investments in cryptocurrency in their balance sheets I think a low key approach like this uh, works best for now. Thank you. Thanks Hemant for this valuable insight. This really means that we will have to wait and see how this matter unfold since there is no concrete framework for regulating cryptocurrency related activities in India just yet. Next we have Pooja, a principal associate focused on e-commerce, retail and technology in our corporate and M&A practice to discuss with us the proposed amendments to the consumer protection e-commerce rules 2020 that are expected to have far-reaching impact on e-commerce platforms if implemented. Sure, thank you for the question. The much debated parent rules were notified by the ministry last year in July. These rules were intended at creating a regulatory framework around consumer protection in the e-commerce space. The rules provided for a host of duties, obligations and liabilities of e-commerce entities, right from their information sharing, placing of orders, payments, deliveries and customer support services. However, even after these rules became effective, the government claims that it continued to receive complaints from sellers about big e-commerce platforms misusing their market dominance. and according preferential treatment to sellers managed or associated with the platforms these amendments also find backing in the recent suggestions made by the rajya sabha committee on subordinate legislation it is in this background that the amendments have now been proposed to the parent rules to incorporate additional measures for ensuring free and fair competition in the e-commerce market and increasing accountability towards consumers at the same time it is to be noted that these are just the draft rules released for public consultation and any comments suggestions can be submitted by stakeholders by 6th july excellent can you point out some of the key changes that have been proposed which may impact players in the e-commerce space sure the proposed amendments include both prohibitory and regulatory measures which will have substantial ramifications for e-commerce entities Let's first talk about some of the prohibitory measures. Firstly, marketplaces are prohibited from abusing their dominant position. Now, what will amount to abuse of dominant position by a marketplace entity will be ascertained based on the principles laid down under the Competition Act. This means that in addition to competition law issues already faced by e-commerce entities recently, companies will also have to look at potential disputes and implications that may arise under the Consumer Protection Law. Let's look at the second measure. Flash sales which benefit a certain set of sellers managed by the e-commerce entities are now banned. This again can be broadly interpreted to encompass a wide variety of exclusivity agreements between sellers and platforms. However, the ministry has clarified that the intention is not to ban conventional flash sales but target only those sales which limit consumer choices, increase prices 
and prevent a level playing field for sellers. Thirdly, any related party or associated enterprise of an e-commerce entity cannot list as a seller on its platform. Now this concept is familiar to entities with foreign direct investment in them. However, for entities with no foreign investment, this is a fairly new restriction. It also appears that the restrictions attached to e-commerce under the FDI policy are gradually being built into the consumer protection laws as a means of dual enforcement of such restrictions. Next, let's talk about some key regulatory measures under the draft rules. Firstly, any entity undertaking cross-selling would now be required to make disclosures to consumers about their data procurement and data sharing associated with such cross-selling. Secondly, logistics and fulfillment service providers will also have to make disclosures about any preferential treatment accorded to sellers. This means that the commercial terms between the parties will now be there for the consumers to see on the platform. Now, one of the most important changes that e-commerce entities must take note of is the introduction of a fallback liability clause. This essentially covers a situation where a seller is in non-compliance with the terms prescribed by the marketplace and such an action results into a loss to consumer. Under the fallback liability clause, any liability on such account of action of the seller will fall back on the marketplace. Now it may be argued that the concept of fallback liability goes against the very essence of operating a marketplace. But at the same time, it is also important to note that this amendment has its genesis in ensuring maximum consumer protection. Therefore, any challenge to such clause will have to be read with the legislative intention behind the amendment. Thank you, Pooja. Uh, what's the general industry feedback about these proposed amendments? Can you throw some light? And also, can you summarize uh, what is the impact of these proposed amendments uh, on the industry uh, in general? If you could throw some light on this. The draft rules are being viewed by some key players as a regulatory overreach by the government. This is because while the principal legislation is the Consumer Protection Act, the amendments are looking to cover the operations of an e-commerce entity, including its internal structuring and contractual terms with sellers and other stakeholders dealing with logistics and data analytics. It is also argued that these changes are better placed in a separate e-commerce policy that is already under discussions or the existing foreign direct investment policy of India. Having said that, it is to be noted that the draft rules, if implemented, can attract substantial liability for e-commerce entities, both in terms of increased compliance burden as well as financial burden. It is thus important that e-commerce companies analyze the implications of the draft rules on their businesses. Thanks, Pooja. E-commerce companies should certainly take note of the proposed amendments and the potential impact of such amendment on their businesses. With this, I'd like to thank my team. Uh, thank you, Gaurav, Hemant and Pooja for your valuable thoughts on these issues. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into PRISM. We will be back in two weeks with more insights on developments that take shape in the days to come. Until then, goodbye. Stay safe. Thank you very much. Have a great day.